Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. Good morning. This morning's reading comes from John 15, 1 through 17. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You have already been cleansed by the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown to the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be with you and that your joy may be complete. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do not do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer because the servants does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last so that the father will give you whatever you ask of him in my name. I'm giving you these commands so that you may love one another. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Beautiful God, Lord, we come before you. God, we come to place ourselves just somewhere under the waterfall of what you're trying to say to us, what you're trying to do in the world. So God, would you help us in this moment to still our hearts? Lord, I speak to those who are, who are anxious here this morning, who are hurting. God, would you speak words of comfort? God, for those who need healing in their body, Lord, would you speak words of healing? God, for those of us who are just kind of ambivalent, who are just kind of somewhere between cynical and apathetic, God, would you spark life in us? Lord, would we see that this truly this, this moment, God, this, the, these uh, gatherings to hear from you are truly where we are, what we were made to be. Worshiping you, hearing from you, seeing, seeing your presence and your life and your holiness in others, God, and serving them. God, this is what you designed us for. So Lord, help us to be present in this moment. God, would you be speaking your presence? God, would you minister in ways that we cannot see and cannot account for? Lord, come Holy Spirit. We love you, Lord Jesus. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, last week, we did some weeding of the garden. 
clearing the ground uh, of our culture a little bit and feeling some of the falseness of the scripts that we receive. And what we wanted to do is begin a process of so of planting some things that will grow. So if you missed that teaching, that's a, that's a good sort of foundational piece for this series. So you can go on the website, ecclesianj.com and check that out. Or you can listen to it on Spotify or Apple Music, whatever your podcast ch- uh, platform of choice is. So today, we want to look at the first layer in a life that grows for God. So McCarty, can you put up those four? Uh, yeah, the four C's. Maybe fixed it. Uh, contemplation is the one we're going to focus on today, and we'll, we'll dig into that in just a moment. Community, congregation, and commission. And really, these are concentric circles that move out from the love of God. All of this centers in God's love for us. As First John says, he has lavished his love upon us that we would be called his daughters and his sons. Like, this is who God is. But all of our life flows out of this. McCarty, can you put up the other one? Yes, nobody helped me, so you still get this. Um, and just if you're a visual person, contemplative, we, we just like are immersed in God's love. Like we are just soaked in it. And then we move into community. We see that people are different from us and they have different personality types, different Enneagram numbers, different ways of seeing the world. And we try to figure out when that person really annoys you, God, what are you doing in the midst of that? And so community, being known and knowing others, loving and serving others. And then we move into a space like this, this larger gathering of a congregation. Like, why do we do this on Sunday mornings? What does it mean? Um, Especially in our culture, when there's so many other things that we could be doing, why be here? What, what, What shape does that take in our lives? And then we move out from this space. How do we live into our vocations? How do we live on mission with God in the world? And so this is the space that we find ourselves in. The first week we're going to focus is this word contemplative. And when you think of a person who is contemplative, what do you think of? It's not a word that has a lot of resonance in our society, right? Now for many of us, images of a monk in complete silence sitting on some far off, uh, you know, mountain somewhere, a person sitting in a nice pastoral setting. They're always alone, right? There's probably something to that. Now, all of that seems good and well, but for those of us who live in the real world, those of us with small kids, how many of you tried to go to the bathroom to get away from your kids? Now, have you seen Jurassic Park where the velociraptors figure out the door handles? And that's kind of what happens. You're like, okay, I've got a moment. Then all of a sudden you see the handle turning. You're like, Oh no, they're coming. And in our world that's sort of like is always frenzied and always moving, the question that we really have to ask is, can this really be an essential? Can being a contemplative person really be an an essential in following the way of Jesus? But what if I told you that we are all contemplatives? That contemplation is about what we set our attention on. And that ultimately our adoration, our devotion follows our attention. The poet Mary Oliver says it this way, that attention is the beginning of devotion. So the question when it comes to contemplation could be asked this way, what has your attention? Some of the smartest minds in psychology now work in Silicon Valley because what they have found is that your attention is worth a ton of money. Uh, This is from an article in The Atlantic. Uh, Franklin Foer writes, In the age of surveillance capitalism, the biggest corporations redirect the gaze, exploiting the psyche's vulnerabilities for profit. 
even silence phones light up with notifications that break eye contact and disrupt concentration. I was with a friend this week and he turned his phone over. He put it on the table and then turned it over. I was like, that's a good practice. I like that. Um, YouTube plays videos in an endless loop cued on the basis of intimate data so that the emotional rush of one clip stokes the desire to watch the next. Facebook, the ultimate manipulation machine, I'm just quoting this guy, I didn't say it, arrays information to exploit the psychic weaknesses of users with the intent of keeping them on its site for as long as it can. The hand touches the phone upon waking even before it can rub the eye or reach across the bed to wake the spouse. Friends, there is a whole economy now set up on getting your attention and getting it to rest on things for a long period of time. Now, I'm not saying this to be an alarmist. I'm not saying this, you know, I'm not the anti-phone guy. It's in my back pocket right now. But to awaken you to the reality that the most important question that we may answer as Christians in this cultural moment is what are we fixing our gaze upon What is it that we are contemplating? Because our adoration, our devotion, as Mary Oliver illuminates for us, will follow what we set our hearts and our minds on. So today we want to look at what does it mean to be a contemplative in the way of Jesus? What does it mean for us to fix our gaze upon Jesus? Now first, a simple definition of contemplation. You can put this up there, McCarty. Um, Contemplation, I think it's in there, right? No, just kidding. Contemplation is directing attention, time, and energy to seeing God face to face, to being with him and obeying his word in a way that radically changes us. I'm going to read that one more time. Contemplation is simply directing our attention, our time, and our energy to seeing God face to face, to being with him and obeying his word in a way that radically changes us. So if you have a Bible, you have one open on your phone, that's not a trick, you can use it. Uh, John 15 going to read from there. Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's giving them some teachings uh, as he approaches his death. And he, he's in a very intimate setting. And it's, uh, as, he, as he speaks to them, he says in John 15 verse 1, he says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You have already been cleansed by the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit because apart from me you can do nothing. And then Jesus goes on in verse 9. He says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Now in the 19th century, wine almost largely disappeared from the Western world. At first, as the American settlers were um, occupying this land, at first they brought these French vines over with them in order to plant new ones. And so they're, they're looking at this new rich soil that they now have at their disposal, and they're planting these vines in order that they might enjoy some of the fruit of their homeland. 
But what, as so often happens when you try to plant something, this is why, like, when you travel, they ask you, like, have you been around livestock? Have you been, uh, do you have any agricultural products? Like, they're very worried about this because uh, it can wreak havoc. And as so often happens, as the American farmers were trying to plant these French varietals in this new soil, uh, what they found was that these things were not growing. They were succumbing to the pests and to the, uh, all the uh, diseases that were present in the American soil. And so then they started trying to plant some local varieties of grapes. And what they found was that it just wasn't that good. Like the flavor was kind of bland. It just wasn't as good as the American wine. And so through the course of this process, they discovered that they could take um, these French vines and attach them to American rootstocks. And so what they did was they would find a vine that was already growing. They would attach the French grapes to the American version. And then from there, they would get something that they were like, okay, this is good. And so now there's this whole American version of a wine economy. And so now there starts to be an exchange. The French were the primary wine growers in the world at that time. And so the French are like, okay, let's try to grow some of these American wines. And so what they did was they start taking the American vines and start trying to grow them in their vineyards. But what they did, what they found was that these American vines, as they planted them, literally destroyed whole vineyards. So this great tradition of French wine growing is now being wiped out because they planted these American vines in their vineyards. And, and the French wine trade at this point is in such great peril that they're worried like this might completely wipe out all of the, of the French production of wine. But what they realized was is that they could attach, just like the Americans did, they could attach these French vines to American rootstocks. And so now the Americans started sending over their rootstocks to the French and the French started doing the same things that the Americans were doing. So basically all the wine in, in the world is American now. Jesus says that he is the vine and we are the branches. You see, when, when we think of growing something, we think of planting a seed and waiting for it to grow. But Bordeaux magazine, talking about the wine growing process, describes that this is, is not quite what happens when we grow wine. Uh, Bordeaux magazine writes, Grapevines are never grown from seed since the desired grapevine genetics do not always carry over from the seed to the plant. Instead, grapevines are grown from cuttings. New vines are attached to a rootstock that will grow in a soil and produce the certain types of grapes for the wine that the grower wants to produce. And this is done through a process of grafting. Grafting involves injuring both the rootstock and the certain type of vine that you are fusing on. So if, if you can work with me for a second, a rootstock is sort of the thing that's in the ground. Instead of planting a seed to grow a new, wine, a, a new uh, vine for wine, you attach a vine to a rootstock. And Jesus says that I am the vine, you are the branches. He's inviting us to see that he is the rootstock that is healthy, that, that will prevent us from being exposed to the elements of our world, that he is protecting us, he is bringing us life, and that there is no kind of vine or branch that cannot be attached to his life. And through this process of grafting, you literally cut both the rootstock and the vine. You connect them at the wounds. And the health of the rootstock, don't miss this, heals both of them. 
Jesus is saying, I am the vine, I am the rootstock, and that we are the branches that we attach our lives to. Jesus is the rootstock that our vines, the vines of our lives are attached to. This is grace through and through. Jesus is the vine, we are the branches. We attach our lives to his everlasting life and we produce fruit. We put our wounds in the scars that mark his hands and we find that we are healed. Contemplation starts in no other place than seeing this incredible story and knowing that it is our story that we are swept up because we have been beckoned to attach our lives to the vine. Jesus says, you are already clean because of this word that I have spoken to you. God, friends, will plant you in his good soil. He will graft you to the vine that is his life. He will attach your wounds to his wounds. He says, put your fingers here to Thomas. He's saying, put your life here and trust me with what you have experienced and trust me with what you have done because my life is enough for yours. And through your life being attached to mine, you will grow. Jesus says it, it is promised. It works out just like we plant things and they grow. And so the, the phrase that Jesus keeps using in John 15 is abide in me, remain in me. This, this word in the Greek, meno, means to dwell or to sit, to be at ease, to remain. The, the translation that we're using today says abide. And I find it so interesting that Jesus uses this agricultural imagery. Because to grow anything at all, other than weeds, which I'm quite proficient at, takes significant knowledge. It takes expertise. Those of you who have been involved in farming in here, you know. Like you didn't just wake up one day and decide, okay, we're going to grow some stuff. Like there's a pass down wisdom, a tradition of knowledge that you receive and that you put into place. And to grow anything at all, even beyond your own knowledge, you can be the best farmer in the world. You can know everything there is to know about the soil, about what it is you're planting. And if there is a drought, you're still not going to grow anything. And so all of this depends too on the, the provision of God's seasons and his cycles that he's put into place. To grow plants and trees and vines, you need just the right amount of water, the right amount of sunlight, the right structure for those things to grow on. And the soil has to be good. And along with all of these important factors, perhaps the most important thing that you need is time. If you were to plant a seed tomorrow, then walk out the next day and be like, huh, guess I didn't do it right. You're missing the point, right? This takes time. It takes God's, uh, the, the, the process that he has laid out. And Jesus says right here in John 15 that my father is glorified by this, that this is how we bring God glory in the world, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. So the question, especially in our sort of hyperactive world, especially like on the East Coast, where like we live in this world that is going a million miles an hour, if God wants us to bear fruit, why would he choose a way that is so painfully slow? Like, couldn't we just spray some pesticide on the weeds, dump some miracle Grow on, on some genetically engineered seeds, and get on with this thing? But Jesus doesn't work in get-rich-quick schemes or in fad diets. He works through the unforced rhythms of grace. He works through the beauty of relationship. He wants you to abide in him. He wants you to make your home in his love. 
And Jesus holds these thing, two things together. He says, you are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. And then he says, abide in me because my father is going to take you through a process, a process that he, he describes as pruning. Pruning our lives away so that we might grow in faithfulness. Pruning our lives away so that we might give more life to the world. Jesus says, he says, my father is the vine grower. Or to put it another way, my father is the vintner. And Jesus says, it is his father that prunes us. Pruning is a process of reducing a vine in the short term to make it more fruitful in the long term. I'll never forget, I, I, you know, I, I asked my mother-in-law who's actually here today, you know, how often like I have to cut these plants back because for me, like if a plant is growing, I'm pretty happy with that. I want to I kind of let that process take its place. But if you know what you're doing, if you know how to grow things, then the process also involves cutting things back. And on many vineyards, when you have a rootstock that you've planted in a soil and you've attached vines to it, every year, the, the vintners will cut the vines back to the rootstock to make sure that they will produce over the long haul. Pruning subtracts and redirects energy. It allows for the vine to hold more firmly to the main branch and to the rootstock. It allows for the whole of the vine to become more fruitful because branches that are pruned tend to over, branches that are not pruned, excuse me, tend to uh, overshadow other branches that need sunlight to grow. If you are into efficiency, pruned branches produce significantly more fruit with less energy. You see guys, vines like us, left to themselves, grow like weeds and don't produce much in the way of fruit. But through a process of pruning, the leaves are exposed and growing clusters of fruit are exposed to the right amount of sunlight. And left to ourselves, we will run after all sorts of things. We will become frenetic in our seeking after the next thing that will satisfy us. We will have all this gross growth, but it will be rootless and fruitless. We will be a weed that takes up a lot of space but doesn't lead to life for ourselves or for those around us. God prunes us throughout our life because as Jesus will later say in John 15, he is looking to make our joy complete. Friends, for our culture, freedom, thus joy, is being able to do whatever we want, whenever we want, as long as we don't hurt anybody. But for the kingdom of Jesus, we are planted and tended by the vintner, the lover of our souls. He trims us back so that we might bear more life and more fruit for those around us. Pruning is not God wounding us. It is not God being cruel. It may be painful. He may be exposing things in our lives that we would rather not admit are there. But it is God inviting us again to renew our life in his life. And here is the beauty of pruning. And Jesus says it so plainly. We are not the ones who prune ourselves. We're not left to our own devices. We're not at the mercy of our own expertise. Jesus says his father is the vintner. He is the one who prunes us. A Gisela Kreginger who wrote a book called The Spirituality of Wine, she says that the vintner is intimately involved in discerning what the vine needs. 
Listen, I know some of you are so like me, you are so removed from the process of, of agriculture and of farming and of where our food comes from. But farmers, good farmers, are in touch with the needs of their crops. They literally walk through in sort of a multi-century experience. They look and they see, they touch with their hands, they smell. They're, they're, they're intimately involved in the growth of their crops. And what Jesus is saying is he's saying that my father is the vine grower. He's saying your father is not far off. That in the moments where you feel like God is doing something profound in your life, God is right there, maybe trimming you back, but he is working through the process. God is the vine grower. He is the one who will trim our lives back so that we might bring more life to the world. He cuts things back in our life that are not going to lead to life. He cuts things back in our life that will not lead to intimacy with him. So the question becomes, how do we submit ourselves to this process? Like, what does this begin to look like? Okay, God, I want you to do this in me. You said you'd do it, so what do we do in response to that? How do we begin to allow that to work its way in our lives? Well, throughout the course of, of the, the church, throughout the course of Christian history, uh, basically people have, have sought this way. They've sought to follow Jesus. And, and they don't all do it in the same way. They don't, their lives look so incredibly unique sometimes. You know, that's one of the things about a life lived for God is it truly is one of a kind. And so often what God is trying to show us is that he is inviting us to follow him in the way that we were designed to follow him. But there are some things that tend to hold true across the spectrum of what it means to follow the way of Jesus. And silence is one of the things that all the master apprentices, all the luminaries that have come before us have kind of said, this is one of those things that you have to sort of figure out how to engage in. Silence is the soil in which contemplation flourishes. Now it's interesting that in our society, as we sort of looked at, the hardest thing to come by so often at any moment in our world, because of the smartphone, because of the way our world is wired, the hardest thing to come by is silence. Because at any moment, there's so many powerful things competing for our attention. The most powerful companies in the world have determined that the most valuable asset for them as a company is your focus. Your focus, silence, is a place of contention. So perhaps the most countercultural thing that we can do is to put our phones down. Andy Crouch wrote a book called The TechWise Family. And in his book, he talks about how in his family, their phones go to bed before they do. And their phones wake up after they do. So just as a kind of a hard and fast example, if the, they and their family go to bed about 10 o'clock, their phones are turned off at 8 o'clock. So they can spend time together. They can spend time doing uh, productive work. And then when they wake up in the morning, if they wake up at 6 their phones don't wake up until eight. Now you don't have to follow, this is a, this is a principle, it's a paradigm, but it's one that I, I think is really helpful. How do we begin to intentionally push against the rhythms of our culture? And how do we begin to embrace and engage the rhythms of God? Whatever you sort of decide upon, we have to ruthlessly cultivate silence in our culture. Silence is the beginning of contemplation and the beginning of God's process of growing our souls to reflect his infinite love. Now, why silence? 
seems like Jesus is about community, right? Like as he comes, he's sitting, he's eating, and he's drinking with people. But we also see in the life of Jesus that he is often withdrawing. And often at the most uh, painful or the most, uh, the, the, the most like momentous moments of his life, he's saying, I need to get away and I need to be with my father. And Jesus says here in John 15, he says, I am the vine. He says, I am the very name that God gave to Moses in the burning bush. Jesus says, I am the vine. And then he invites us. He says, abide in me, remain, dwell, stay with me. Silence is tuning our souls to the very presence of God, inviting him to speak a fresh word over us. It is facing our own darkness and putting that at the feet of Jesus and trusting that he sees all of us and that he loves us still. Again, the poet Mary Oliver, to pay attention, this is our endless and proper work. Friends, God is inviting you. We swim in a world that is awash with God's love. He loves you so dearly. And so often we are so out of tune with what he's saying to us. And in silence, we stop what we are doing. We stop what we think is productive. We stop what we think is making a life for ourselves. And we, we remain, we abide, and we put up our feet and we say, God, would you speak a fresh word to me? So the first step to remaining, to allowing God to prune your life is to find and ruthlessly cultivate rhythms of silence. And now for any of you who are, you know, have tried to keep silence even for a couple minutes, we know that silence in and of itself is uh, not exactly the easiest thing. Any of you ever made a commitment to, all right, I'm going to spend some time with God, I'm going to spend some time in the quiet, and then you've done the thing where you're like, okay, I'm, you know, my goal for today is 10 minutes. And you sit there for what feels like an eternity and you look at your watch or your, your phone, and you're like, oh my goodness, it has been two minutes. And your mind wanders in all sorts of directions within like, you know, you, you, you have like a second of silence and you think about 40 things and you're like, I didn't even know this was possible. Like, am I the guy from Limitless? Like I can just, like my brain works so quickly. And you realize that silence, as we step in from a world that is frenzied and relentless in its seeking of our attention, like we can't just step inside of that and be like, okay, now, uh, now I will meditate perfectly. So how do we step in from this pace? How do we stop? How do we slow down? Jesus gives us one thing that we can focus on, one thing that we can rest in. Jesus says in John 15, starting in verse 7, he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and I abide in his love. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Now to keep his commandments, that sounds so contractual. Okay, there, there it is. You might be thinking, okay, so God loves me, all that, but there it is, right? There, there's the, the catch. There's the thing in the contract that's saying, this is what you have to do. You have to keep his commandments. This is what you have to do to make sure that God is happy with you. But notice what Jesus is saying. He says in verse 7, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you. And then in verse 10, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. 
Jesus will later in John 15 spell out that his commandments are laying down our lives for one another. This is his command to us, but we will focus on that next week. But here he is saying to us, focus your attention, immerse yourself in my words. John 1 tells us that Jesus himself is the very word of God, that with God when he speaks, there is no distinction between his word and his action. It is completely one, and that Jesus comes to us as the very word of the Father, speaking the truth, revealing the fullness of who God is. And here Jesus says, keep my commandments. And so we contemplate the life of Jesus. That Jesus in his life, his death, his resurrection has shown us the way that God is working in the world. He has shown us God's love for us. And so we read stories about Jesus. We carry them around. Jesus says, remain, let, your let my words abide in you. We let them do their work in us. Friends, it may seem so counterintuitive. But when we focus our attention and our devotion upon the life of Jesus, when we see what he's done for us, it doesn't just fill our head with all sorts of nice facts about like, oh, who is this biblical character? God is not interested in your ability to pass a Bible test. What God is interested in is your heart. And as we focus our lives and our attention on the life of Jesus as presented in the scriptures, we find that God is growing our lives, that he is growing our souls. Jesus didn't just come as a nice example for us to follow, a good teacher to tell us heavenly rules. He's certainly not less than that, but he's so much more. Jesus is the very word of God. When he speaks healing, healing comes. When he speaks mercy, forgiveness comes. When he speaks life, death is defeated. So in light of all this, friends, I want to, I I want to challenge you. I want to commend to you a very simple practice this week. Uh, first of all, later today when you have some time, I want you to open a, a Bible. Um, let's try to do a paper Bible if you have one. If you don't have one, talk to me after. I will find you one. But open the Bible. We have these biographies of Jesus called the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in them, they each paint their own picture of Jesus. Different pictures, equally beautiful, but you know, certain ones of them resonate with us differently. For me, the Gospel of John is my absolute favorite. Uh, I, I find John to be an artist and sort of a prophet. He sees the world uh, at an angle that I'm like, yeah, I. I resonate with that. Uh, for those of you who are a little more analytical, you like uh, stats and numbers, Luke might be for you. Luke was a doctor. He's no less an artist, but he, he has a way of approaching things that uh, is very linear. Uh, Matthew writes from a, a, a thoroughly Jewish perspective, and he's bringing to light, um, you know, just like what? What is God doing in this grand story in the world? And then Mark, if you're from New Jersey, actually might be for you. The word he uses the most is immediately. It's like, fix. So he's moving the story along, which is why his gospel is the shortest. Now, I'm not challenging you to read the whole of the, of the book, but what I want you to do is to find a story. And maybe you kind of have an idea. You're like, what about the story when Jesus does this? Hey, God has given you this amazing tool. It's called Google. And if you have three ideas about what might be happening in the Bible, you can Google it. And it'll tell you where it is. And then you can turn to it in your Bible. So that's, that's completely cool. Now you may discover that some things you thought Jesus said aren't actually in the Bible, which is also commendable. But I want you to find a story. And this is going to be your story for the week. 
I want you to read through this story tonight and then commit each day to picking up that same story again. To spending the first, you know, five to ten minutes, whatever you can manage. I know, I know some of you have small kids. Like, this is not like a new legalism that's saying, if you don't do this, then you're not a Christian. Absolutely not. Sometimes you just wake up and your kids are already awake and you're like, oh man, <laughs> that time I had in the morning is now gone. But find some time to spend in silence. Read through this story and then just carry it around with you for the day. And then what I want you to do is to take your phone, set an alarm for 114. And that's just a simple reminder. John 1 tells us that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That we want to, our, our goal in life is to bring this word from God in the Bible into our lives, into our lives as we work, into our lives as we serve our kids, into our lives as we study. That it is all God's world, that he is working in the midst of it. So 1.14 p.m., not a.m. That would be a bad email. Come on, man, I need to sleep. 1.14 p.m., just a reminder of what God is doing, a reminder of the story that you read that morning. And if you can pick it up, if, you, if it works in your day to pick it up and read it again, do that. If it doesn't, just remember, okay, what's going on in this story? Um, and then as you read through this story, just start saying, God, where, where am I in this story? Usually it's not Jesus. I'll, I'll just like a little spoiler alert. You're usually not God in the context of the story. But God, what are you saying to me as I take on the perspective of maybe one of the characters or I see the angle of the parable in this way? Like, what are you, what are you saying? And just every day, would that be your practice? Read the story in the morning, remember it in the afternoon, and then as you go to bed, you know, in the way that God is so graciously gives us, just try to recall that story to mind one more time. You may find that it is just simply a prelude to your dreams. And as you're thinking about it, you drift off to sleep. And you know what? God's not mad at you for that. So would you just let this story shape you throughout the week? Friends, this is contemplation. It is not much more than that, of immersing yourself in the life of Jesus, of allowing him to frame your reality in your world. And we'll come back next week and we'll see what happened. Jesus says that I am the vine, you are the branches, abide in me. To abide is to be planted in the rich soil of God's love. To entrust ourselves to his processes, which often happen beyond where our eyes can see. Underneath the surface. We're numb to this process because we think we can explain it. And in our culture, we think because we can explain something that we understand it. But it's a miracle. And God works through these like millions upon millions of miracles that are, that are happening all around us if we just take time to stop and to slow down. And friends, you may be sitting here today and you may be saying, there's nothing about my life that would suggest a holy life. Nothing about my life that would suggest that God wants something from it, that God could love me, that God has anything to do with me. And as we see from the life of Jesus, you would be profoundly wrong. Because this is the incredible gospel of Jesus Christ. 
There is nothing about him giving his life on a cross that would suggest resurrection and life for the entire world. Everybody watching that story unfold thought that he was defeated, thought that he was broken and ashamed, and yet three days later, he rises from the dead. He takes his step out of the grave, and he says, behold, I make all things new. And that all things is not just some cosmic reality. That all things is your life, your soul, the very moments of your day. Friends, Jesus is saying, when you abide in me, you find who you were meant to be. And so would you let him, would you let him work this process? It may involve pruning, it may involve chopping some things back that are not bringing you life anyway. But would you let him work as he works so graciously and so slowly? Would you let him do the thing that he wants to do in you so that your joy would be complete and his joy would be in you? This is our God. This is his story. He invites us to wrap our lives, to abide in him, to remain in him. Would you pray with me? Beautiful God, Lord, we ask that your faithfulness, God, your beauty, God, your miracle, where you bring things to life that would seem to suggest that there's nothing but death and nothing that would, uh, that would ever grow there. Lord, would you begin to work your miracle in us? God, would we see that your amazing grace calls us all to identify the story of our lives with your story, to remain, to abide in you. God, that there there is grace, there there is peace, God, that we can lay our heavy burdens down at your feet and trust. God, will we entrust ourselves to your life, to your processes, to your slowness, to your seasons, God, in order that we might see that you are bringing life, not just for us, God, but on behalf of the world. God, you're bringing fruit into our lives that will serve others. Lord Jesus, you are the vine. We are the branches. Would you help us to remain in you? We love you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.